Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. atomic destruction threatens. The call goes out for Bud Gregory, the wizard of the Great Smokies, who alone can save the situation. The Nameless Something by Murray Leinster. That's next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast. We're going live again on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter at 8 p.m. in Sydney, Australia, Thursday, January 25th. I hope you'll join us. And if you were with us last week, you heard one of our listeners recommend that we create merchandise with aliens wearing Hawaiian shirts. We did, and you will love these designs. I promise. And there are links so you can check them out in the description. Bud Gregory is back on the podcast If the name Bud Gregory sounds familiar, it's because he is the star of the Gregory Circle, which can be heard in an earlier episode. Today, he returns in the second installment of the Bud Gregory Saga, which can be found in Thrilling Wonder Stories magazine in June 1947. Turn with me to page 116, The Nameless Something by Murray Leinster. Chapter 1. Jalopy with Wings Bud Gregory was something there isn't any word for. He bet on a dirt track automobile race in the state of Colorado and won $12. Simultaneously, a certain European power made a very polite apology to the Icelandic government for the falling of a rocket projectile near Reykjavik. In so doing, It advertised publicly that it had long-range guided missiles capable of flights of over 2,000 miles. Next day, Bud Gregory bet on a second dirt track race and won $6 more. At very nearly the same instant, 
Izvestia published a bellicose article which practically called for war on the United States. UNO or no UNO. And a middle European nation offered a calculated, uncalled-for insult to its United States ambassador. The day after, Bud Gregory sat in the bar of a motor tourist camp and drank beer contentedly all day long. Two days later still, on a mountain highway in the Rockies, the driver of a 16-wheel diesel truck came booming to a sharp curve, which had a cliff on one side and a 400-foot drop on the other. The truck thundered around that curve and ran slap into a rattle-trap car with a flapping fabric top and an incredible load of children and household goods. Ran slap into it, that is, to the extent that a collision was inevitable. The jalopy was on the wrong side of the road. The truck could not turn out, nor the jalopy turn in in time. So the truck driver froze and saw the rattletrap vehicle swerve out still farther on the wrong side of the road, ride out until only its inner wheels were on the highway and its outer wheels spun merrily over vacancy. It should have toppled instantly and horribly, only it didn't. It rode exactly as if there were an invisible highway surface over emptiness. The diesel driver saw it swerve placidly back into the road behind him and go on. And he braked his monster truck to a stop and had a perfectly good fit of the shakes. He made up his mind to take a week off to be spent in rest and quiet. He did. On that day, it was said in Washington, that a grave international crisis threatened, and eminent statesmen went about in spectacular silence, refusing to speak for publication, but privately tipping off their favorite newspaper men to monstrous events due to occur. On yet another day, Bud Gregory arrived at yet another place where further dirt-track automobile racing was in progress and attempted negotiations with a dejected driver who had not been in the money for weeks. The driver laughed at him bitterly, and Bud Gregory was indignant. He bet on the races and lost two dollars. On the same day, four satellite nations of a certain European power revealed that for several months they'd been running atomic piles, and now had a sufficient stock of atomic bombs for their own defense. The rest of the United Nations erupted into frenzied protests, which cut off short when they realized it was too late to object. And after three more days, Bud Gregory drove into Los Angeles, in a car which was in the last stages of dilapidation. It contained himself, his wife, and an indeterminate number of tow-haired children. Also, it contained two hound dogs, several mattresses, many packages, innumerable parcels, had strapped on cots fastened to its running boards, and was further festooned with gunny sacks containing stocks of vegetables and canned foods. It was flagged down by a motorcycle cop beside the highway, 
But Bud Gregory did not stop. The decrepit car plunged ahead. The motorcycle cop mounted his steed and pursued. The decrepit car moved more swiftly. It looked as if an asthmatic 20 miles an hour would be its limit. But it hit 40 within seconds of the cop's attempt to halt it. It was making 80 when it ran into Los Angeles traffic. And still, it did not stop. The motorcycle cop sweated blood, envisioning catastrophe. He gave his motorbike everything it would take, blaring his siren continuously and shrilling his whistle when he passed policemen on foot in the hope that they would telephone on ahead. The next 15 minutes gave a dozen members of the traffic police, who joined in the chase, gray hairs and a tendency to babble quietly to themselves. The dilapidated car left all pursuit behind. It ran into traffic in which it should have smashed up 50 times over. It left behind it a stream of crashes and collisions and nerve-wracked pedestrians. But it did not even touch another vehicle or a single individual. The collisions came from other cars, swerving frantically to avoid it as it rocketed through Los Angeles' swarming streets. Half the time, it rode on the wrong side of the highway, cutting in and out, speeding up with an incredible acceleration, slowing down with completely impossible abruptness, and turning corners at a rate which even those who saw it did not believe. On Wilshire Boulevard, it reached a climax of preposterous performance. It came streaking through traffic at something like 92 miles an hour. It left a mounting uproar behind it. And it came to a crossing where a red light had halted everything, came eeling down the wrong side of the street, swerved so that it should have turned somersaults. But observers said that it ran as if its wheels were glued to the ground, and there in front of it, in the only space by which it could move on, was a monstrously fat woman in the act of crossing the street as the light permitted. Women fainted on the sidewalk after it was all over. There was no time to faint before. The dilapidated car headed for the fat woman at 98 miles an hour. Then, when it could not possibly stop in time, it began to slow. Some witnesses said that it stopped in 15 feet. Certainly it stopped so suddenly that the gunny sacks dangling from its top supports swung and stood out stiffly before it, and one of them burst, and potatoes shot out before the stop car like bullets. A small one, a cull, smacked the fat woman smartly in a highly indecorous manner. She shrieked and leaped, and the rattle trap shot through the space she had vacated. In 20 feet, it was traveling 60 miles an hour. In 40, it was going better than 90 again. And it went on out of town like a bat out of a belfry. No motorcycle cop came anywhere near it. Not even the two policemen on the farther side of town who took up the chase on a clear highway. One of them pushed his bike, so he claimed, up to 120 miles an hour. The decrepit jalopy, which should have collapsed, 
far below the speed limit, left him behind, as if he were standing still, and a tow-headed child poked his head through the flapping back curtain and stuck out its tongue at him as it went on. On that same day, the government of the United States received a very blunt note from the European power, whose satellites had revealed their possession of atomic bombs, and which had itself sent apology to Iceland for landing a guided missile near Reykjavik. The note was not an ultimatum in form, of course, but it expressed the desire of the European power to negotiate with the United States regarding changes in the American form of government, which changes were necessary to make the European government feel that the United States was sincerely desirous of peace. In other words, the European power had decided that democracies were dangerous to it and amiably offered America the choice of surrendering to a small, fanatical party within its borders or of facing an atomic war. And that night, Bud Gregory drove into a tin-can tourist camp, and he and his family settled down for a comfortable stay. As soon as he made sure that the dirt track races nearby were still going on. Chapter 2 Miracles Without Work like everybody else in the United States, Dr. David Murphy of the Bureau of Standards in Washington felt rather sick at the prospect of war under any circumstances, and especially under the conditions obtaining. The point was that the United States literally could not make a sneak atomic attack on anybody. Its prospective enemy could. Nobody in America had authority to issue an order for the beginning of war. In the European powers government, there was one man who could simply nod his head and have guided missiles go keening up into the stratosphere to fall thousands of miles away upon the cities of the United States. If Congress took his note as it deserved to be taken, as a threat of war, he would nod his head, and possibly half of the population in America would be dead within hours. The United States was as well-armed as any other power in the world, perhaps better armed. But the United States could not shoot first. It simply, literally could not. And in atomic war, the one who shoots first wins. So the situation was that the enemy had made a threat which struck at the very roots of American civilization. And if the United States took measures to meet it, it would be destroyed. Most of the people who really understood the danger went into hidden panic. There was a sudden quiet movement of well-informed people out of the larger cities. The movement spread. It ceased to be quiet. It became a mass exodus, more or less orderly, to be sure, but a movement of whole populations. Terror lived in the cities, but not in the open country, so the city became practically abandoned, and the European power watched with sardonic amusement as the greatest nation on earth seemed to go into a blue funk at the very notion of the European power's displeasure. Two-thirds of Congress found excuses to leave Washington, which could certainly be bombed in case of war. 
it was impossible to secure a quorum in the capital either to enact laws to resist the threat or to yield to it. The government of the United States was paralyzed by a mere verbal menace. But Dr. David Murphy stayed at his post. He kept his head. The menace held, but for nearly a week, nothing happened. The State Department replied to the note it had received. It asked the European power for the agenda of the discussion it proposed and for an outline of the reasons why the European power feared aggression from the United States. It used all the normal tricks to stall and gain time, which was exactly in line with the desires of the head of the threatening nation. So long as there was a crisis in being, there would be terror and confusion in America. Large numbers of the population would be uprooted. The cities would be nearly or quite deserted. Commerce would stop. And generally, such a state of affairs would exist that, so a European would reason, presently the American public would be willing to accept any possible surrender of principle just to get things going again. It would be willing even to surrender democracy. There were times when it seemed likely in America, too. Some people stayed on at their posts. Some sent their families to safety and carried on. But very many fled. Still, there was a skeleton semblance of city life still going on. Many factories closed, but some florists stayed in business. Police and newspapers here and there and radio stations and delicatessen stores and a few taxicabs and generally a small percentage of every sort of activity continued to function. But it was a very small percentage. Murphy, however, grimly made the most of what was left. He stayed at his desk at the Bureau of Standards, and urgently and persistently hounded the moribund clipping bureaus for newspaper accounts of odd events. That paradoxic activity, he felt, was the only hope that the United States could have to avoid either complete social and economic collapse or else bombardment by atomic bombs, which would reduce its cities to ruins. He'd been collecting such clippings for months. It was a good deal of a strain on his finances, too, because he only had a $4,700 civil service job, and living in Washington is expensive. He paid ten cents for every clipping sent to him by four bureaus, which dutifully searched newspaper columns all over the country. If somebody announced an atomic engine, a clipping came to Murphy. If an automobile had a freak accident, he saw the news account. If a souped-up motor made history at an outboard motor racing meet, or an inventor made extravagant claims for some new device, or there was an explosion without playing cause, or somebody reported having seen something impossible, the last especially, Murphy was sure to be poring over the news account as soon as it reached print. It was the way by which he hoped eventually to locate Bud Gregory. He'd only seen the man twice, but he knew what Bud Gregory was, and there was no word for it. Musical prodigies are well-known enough. Mathematical marvels extract fourth-power roots correctly by mental arithmetic and are completely unable to tell how they do it. But Bud Gregory 
was something else. He knew, intuitively, the answer to any problem a physicist could propound, and he hated work. He had run a one-man auto repair shop in a village in the Great Smoky Mountains and worked only when he couldn't help it. But when he did work, he casually devised shortcuts to avoid work that were breathtaking. Murphy now owned one gadget Bud Gregory had made. It completely eliminated friction from any mechanical device it was hooked to. Murphy had studied it exhaustively, but he couldn't understand it and couldn't even duplicate it. But Bud Gregory's genius once had brought about results he did not anticipate. To get even with someone who'd offended him, Bud had made a certain device and turned it over to his tormentor, who used it otherwise than as Bud expected. Common ordinary rock became a monstrous atomic pile where it was turned on. Radioactive dust and gases wrought havoc before Murphy found the source, and Bud Gregory improvised a way to stop it. And then Bud Gregory, in a panic, had disappeared lest he be held to account for the damage his device had caused. Now, Murphy hoped to locate him by further, and it was to be hoped harmless, results of his combined genius and laziness. He'd vanished in a rattle trap with his wife and dogs and children. He would unquestionably support himself by roadside automobile repairs. So, sooner or later, Murphy hoped to receive a newspaper clipping of some preposterous event which he, and only he, would know meant Bud Gregory was at work. But it came to be grim work, waiting and endlessly hoping. A second sharp note arrived from the European power, declaring that there was reason to believe the United States had secretly prepared for war. If the Atlantic carrier fleet remained invisible, it would have to be assumed that the ships had set out on a mission to loose plane-carried atomic bombs on the complaining nation. So, the carrier fleet returned to port. Then, a third note arrived. A fleet of long-range U.S. bombers waited at its home base, fueled and armed and ready to take off. Was this fleet ready for a flight across the North Pole to make an atomic attack? If not it would be disarmed. Then another note still. The atomic bomb plants of the United States still functioned, turning out atomic explosives. Against whom did the United States prepare, if not against the complaining nation? Congress could not be convened because too many of its members were in a funk. The United States could not make war without congressional action unless attacked. So it could not make war until attacked, and an attack with atomic bombs by 2,000-mile guided missiles. The country almost disintegrated, so far as the larger cities were concerned. The little towns, though, which were not important enough to be bombed, throve in their impunity. Farmhouses and boarding houses, accustomed to take in summer boarders, fairly bulged at their seams. Beaches and camps and cottage towns, trailer camps and mountain hotels and lakeside resorts all hummed and boomed with refugees from the cities, while the cities themselves were like cities of death. 
Whole industries shut down for lack of workers and executives. There was privation and unemployment because death was in the air. There had not been so much as a firecracker set off, but the United States faltered in its stride, and its life came almost to a standstill because of the imminence of atomic war. But the owners of roadside taverns grew rich, and county fairs flourished, and roller coaster proprietors bought new diamonds, and dirt track auto races in small towns were thronged with patrons. And Bud Gregory followed the dirt track races. He had a trick that brought in plenty of money nowadays. Plenty. Ten, fifteen, sometimes even twenty dollars in a single day and without his doing a tap of work. He sat in blissful somnolence beside his antique car. His children brought him beer. Now and again he sent one of them to make a small bet. Bud Gregory, who was the only hope of the survival of the American way of life, loafed blissfully, dozed contentedly, idled magnificently, and drank beer comfortably. He did not lift a finger unnecessarily from one day's end to another. It was pure accident that, as civilization toppled in America, newspaper clippings reached Murphy, which told him where Bud Gregory was. He got a plane ride to California by a combination of luck and desperation. On the way west, he read and reread the three newspaper clippings on which he believed the fate of the United States depended. One was an account of the impossible ride of an ancient jalopy through Los Angeles traffic at 90 miles an hour. The reporter who wrote it didn't believe it himself. One was a digest of tall tales current among motor tourists of a mysterious mechanic roaming the highways and performing miraculous repairs for ridiculously low prices. It was a feature story, suggesting that motor tramps were devising a legendary figure who would someday rival Paul Bunyan. But the third was the important one. That told of a dirt track automobile race, in which the winner made absolutely unparalleled time, averaging three laps to the field's two, and achieving turns that even those who saw them didn't believe. Murphy knew better than the eyewitnesses what had happened in all three cases. Bud Gregory had made his way across the continent in a car, which should have fallen apart in the first ten miles. He was using that outrageous gift of his to keep from working. And no more than four days before Murphy boarded a plane in Washington, he'd been somewhere near the dirt race track at Palo Bajo in California. Murphy made for that place as fast as wangled passage on an army plane could take him. He was lucky. There was a major general on board, with a date with a blonde at Laguna Beach. The plane made only two stops between the Atlantic and Pacific coasts. But Los Angeles, which had been thriving a week before, was nine-tenths deserted when Murphy arrived. Trains ran irregularly, and buses practically not at all and those which did run were scenes of riot as they loaded up. Murphy spent $75 of very hard-saved cash for a ride behind a motorcyclist to a town ten miles from Palo Bajo.
he trudged the rest of the way. The open country was thickly populated, and every roadside tree shaded a group of campers from the cities. But there was an extraordinary holiday air everywhere. Murphy was acutely conscious of it as he trudged along the highways with his single handbag for luggage. Since bombs were apt to fall on the cities at any time, there were camps and bivouacs of city people everywhere. But since none had fallen so far, and would not fall except on cities, there was a general effect of slightly apprehensive vacationing. When Murphy trudged wearily into Palo Bajo, his feet burned, his shoulders ached, and the muscles of his arms were sore from the unaccustomed labor of carrying a burden. He was worn out and dispirited, but he went doggedly to the fairgrounds where the dirt track races went on. He went to the pits where the small souped-up cars were serviced. He felt that there was no time to rest, and anyhow, his appearance in an exhausted condition was in line with his plan for locating Bud Gregory. He went to the first pit, where a particularly greasy and especially dilapidated small racing car was being worked on by two besmeared individuals. Look, said Murphy heavily, I've got to find a good mechanic. My car stalled ten miles back. It ran dry and heated up and froze. I can't get a garage to touch it. They're jammed. The last was true. With every car in California on the road and out of the cities, rural garage men rubbed their hands in fiendish glee. It was so everywhere. One of these two men looked up gloomily. We're busy, but I've got to get my car fixed, said Murphy desperately. Five bucks if you just tell me where to find a mechanic who'll do the job. One of the two got up and pointed. Try Moe's he said sourly. That beefy-looking guy over there. He's bound to be some mechanic because the car he's got ain't any better than this one. And it goes faster and makes turns no car has a right to make. He watches it night and day, blast him. And you won't get nowhere, but you can talk to him. Murphy handed over five dollars. He limped toward the shed that had been pointed out. A bulky man with squint eyes reared up as he approached. A grease monkey looked at him suspiciously. No visitors, the big man snarled. Clear out. I've got a car in a ditch, said Murphy, and the motor's frozen. I'll pay a hundred bucks for a mechanic to fix it. Beat it, repeated the beefy man formidably. I'll pay you ten bucks if you'll name a mechanic, said Murphy. I can pay a hundred for fixing it. He had barely two hundred dollars in the world and this man was not Bud Gregory. But Murphy was sure he was on the right track. A car that went impossibly fast and made impossible turns. His own car, of course, was imaginary, but he looked worn out and dusty and very convincing. The grease monkey said, drawling, That fella could do it, Mose, and ten bucks had come in handy. He'll do it for fifty, the squint-eyed man said shrewdly. I get fifty or he don't do nothing. Take it or leave it. He turned to the grease monkey. You know where to find him. Murphy handed over fifty dollars. He felt weak at the knees. It was enormously important to find Bud Gregory. Nobody else in the world would do. 
the grease monkey came back with Bud Gregory, who looked at Murphy. Howdy, Gregory said in an unhappy voice, and looked uneasily around for a policeman. Murphy swallowed. Hello, Bud. I want to talk to you. Anywhere you say. How about some beer? Chapter 3 Three Racketeers Instantly, Bud Gregory brightened. He was tall and gangling and drooping. He was typically poor white, Appalachian Highland version, bony and listless. He had worn an air of complacency until he saw Murphy, but that was gone now because he'd made a device which was a neutron shield and set a monstrous atomic pile to work back in the Smoky Mountains. Murphy was the man who had found out his responsibility for the devastation which resulted. But on the other hand, Murphy had paid him $600 for a device which absolutely abolished friction. And with that as capital, he had set out to tour the United States without being bothered by detectives and practically without working. Why, uh, sure, Mr. Murphy, said the man who knew by instinct all the things the scientists of the world struggled to learn. Beer? Sure. There's a place right close, Mr. Murphy, but I can't go fur. There's some fellas coming to see me today. They told me if I'd fix a dinkus for them, they'd pay me wages for as long as it works, without me doing a tap of work more. Murphy looked at him in envy so great that it was almost hatred. But Gregory knew, without knowing how he knew, how to make absolutely anything he chose. He'd made a wire that absorbed heat and turned it into electricity but he'd done it to save the trouble of mending an automobile radiator in the normal manner, and he had charged just $10 for the job. Bud Gregory had made a shield through which nothing could pass, not even a neutron, and he'd done it to save himself the trouble of replacing that miraculous wire with a tedious job of sheet metal soldering on the same radiator. He'd made another device at Murphy's demand which stopped even neutrons cold after the shield had started an unshielded atomic pile to work. Gregory could weld broken parts of a motor without taking them out and could free a frozen motor without so much as loosening a bolt and lots of other things. But all he wanted was to sit in absolute somnolence and inactivity. Come on and get the beer, said Murphy. I came all the way across the continent to find you. Something's happened that you can fix, and it'll square everything about that business back in the Smokies. He added, There aren't any detectives with me. Bud Gregory shambled beside him, frowning. Listen, Mr. Murphy, he said uneasily. I don't want no truck with sheriffs and policemen. I don't even want to square nothing with them. I just want to get along without working myself to death, not bothering nobody, and nobody bothering me. Murphy ushered him into a tavern opposite the racetrack where the souped-up racers ran. The point is that somebody is bothering you, said Murphy, and me and everybody else. We'll get our beer and I'll tell you about it.
They found a table in the crowded room. Palo Bajo was too small a town to raid an atomic bomb. So in the tavern were clerks and businessmen and laborers, fathers of families and loudly shirted young men, and men who were trying to forget the menace that hung over the country, and men who did not even try to think about it. Murphy explained as Bud Gregory drank his beer. He explained in words of one syllable that a certain European power had proved it had rockets which could travel 2,000 miles and atom bombs for them to carry. And with those up its sleeve, it demanded that the United States give up its way of life and adopt an entirely new social system. It was ready to blast every city in North America on a moment's notice if the United States, unready as usual, started to get ready to fight, it would be destroyed. Every big city in the nation would be blown to atoms before preparations for defense could be even halfway completed. Bud Gregory listened uncomprehendingly. He drank his beer and squirmed in his seat. But I don't aim to have no truck with sheriffs and policemen and such, he protested. I ain't bothering nobody. Murphy explained further. Bud Gregory could devise some defense. He could probably make the defense. If he did, he, Murphy, would guarantee that he would have money enough to live on for all the rest of his life. But you're a government man, said Bud Gregory unhappily. You're a good fella, but I don't want no truck with the government. Murphy sweated. Promises of a fortune meant nothing to Bud Gregory. But Murphy had $150 left. He offered that for a device that would protect America against atomic bombardment. Millions had no meaning to Bud Gregory. $150 was concrete. He wavered. Listen here, Mr. Murphy, Gregory said plaintively. I got some fellas coming to see me today. They told me they'd pay me $100 down and $10 a day if I just fitted a car up with the dinkus I got on a friend's car over at the track. I don't even have to make it. All I got to do is take it off that racing car and put it on their car. And I don't aim to work myself to death for nobody. If I got $10 a day coming in, I'm all set. I can just sit and not bother nobody. Murphy felt sheer desperation. Talk of war and devastation had no meaning to Bud Gregory. He just wanted to sit somnolently in the sunshine. If he could get a hundred dollars without working, he would not work for millions, or even for a more comprehensible hundred and fifty. He was simply impervious. Then the beefy, squint-eyed man loomed up beside the table. He looked definitely unpleasant now. With him were two other men who looked more unpleasant still. They approached the table. How's your car? asked the squint-eyed man, snarling. Got it fixed yet? To the others, he said, He told me his motor was froze. Bud Gregory looked up. Howdy, gentlemen, he said cordially. Mr. Murphy here, he's an old friend of mine. He's a government man from the East. 
I done some work for him back there, and he hunted me up. Sit down, have some beer. The two newcomers' faces went expressionless. The squinty-eyed man looked murderous. Then the three of them glanced at each other. One leaned close to Murphy. Don't start anything, Mr. Government Man, he said softly. Me and my friend got guns on you. Button into our affairs, huh? He moved suddenly. Murphy felt a horrible impact. Then he felt nothing whatever. The European power sent a very pained note to the government of the United States. The American government had told its people of previous diplomatic correspondence, thus causing hostility toward the European power among Americans. And the European power was devoutly desirous of peace, yet it could not but be alarmed at the increasing belligerency of American public opinion. Then there was the evacuation of American cities. That suggested nationwide preparation for war. Would the American government give some convincing guarantee that it did not plan an unwarned attack, such as the grounding and dismantling of all aircraft and the decommissioning of its navy? The European power was waging a war of nerves. Its purpose was the harassment of the American public. From disorganization, unemployment, and ultimate famine, to the point where it would welcome any possible change. Its plan was to make the American people themselves demand the changes in its social system that the European power desired. In Washington, it began to look as if that end might be achieved. Hunger was beginning to show up. Privation was appearing. Looting in the cities had begun. So far, a certain amount of holiday spirit still existed, to be sure. But the future looked bleak. And Murphy woke up in the back of a speeding car. He had a splitting headache. Bud Gregory sat uneasily beside him. There were three men in the front seat, of whom one was the squint-eyed man. And when Murphy moved, one of them turned around. Don't try nothing, he said amiably. We ain't got any use for you government guys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. He displayed a blued metal weapon and turned back. Murphy's head throbbed agonizedly. 
He felt nauseated and ill. Bud Gregory rolled unhappy eyes at him. Honest, Mr. Murphy, I didn't know they was going to act like this, he said miserably. They offered me a hundred dollars and ten dollars a day to soup up their sedan. The car sped along the incredibly populated roadside. There were people everywhere. When cities empty, people have to go somewhere. Small towns swarmed. Villages overflowed. Even the highways were lined with groups of people with picnic blankets and blanket shelters. Murphy rubbed his head to clear it and closed his eyes at the anguish which came of the moment. What happened? he asked thickly. Why didn't they kill me? The man in front turned around again. We wouldn't think of it, fella, he said, grinning. It was tricky enough, crashing you in a crowded room and dragging you out as a drunk, without nobody getting wise. If we'd shot you, we might have had some trouble getting away ourselves. What's the idea? asked Murphy drearily. Are you spies or just plain traitors? Ha! Huh, scoffed the man in front. You talk like the movies. We're just honest guys picking up a living how we can. Your friend there has got a little trick that'll be useful to us. He can fix up a car to go faster, stop shorter, turn sharper, and have more pickup. The beefy man at the wheel growled at him. He shut up. The pattern wasn't right for spies or agents of a foreign European power. Agents of that particular power, in any case, were packed too full of ideology to talk as this fellow did. These men sounded like yeggs or crooks who'd seen a chance to acquire getaway cars that no cop could overtake. Murphy looked dizzily at Bud Gregory, who grinned uneasily. Yeah, that's it, Mr. Murphy. You see, I was traveling across country, and my car didn't have much power. Motor lost a lot of compression, so I put on a dinkus and made her pull up hills. And that's what these fellas want. What did you do? asked Murphy. His throat was dry and his voice was hoarse, and his head ached and ached and ached. Uh, Bud Gregory looked uncomfortable. You know them little hunks of stuff that metal's made of? They wiggle all around. They wiggle faster when they get hot. Murphy reflected dully that Bud Gregory, who was practically illiterate, was speaking with precision of the random motion of molecules, which is caused by heat. I got a kind of idea, said Bud Gregory that if I could make all those hunks of stuff move one way instead of all ways, it'd push the car ahead. So I fixed up a dankus and made them all move one way. It gave my car a lot more power. Murphy was not astonished. Bud Gregory could not astonish him now. Of course, if all the molecules of a substance move in the same direction, the substance itself moves in that direction. Using the molecular motion generated by heat, you should get practically limitless acceleration, quite independent of traction. It should start a car off at any imaginable speed. It should climb any hill. It should stop a car with unbelievable suddenness. And if the motion could be controlled, and hence the thrust, it could keep a car from turning over, 
and from skidding. Yes, also it would be action without a reaction, and it would serve equally to power an ancient jalopy or an aeroplane. Only an aeroplane wouldn't need wings, because the same molecular thrust could lift it, and that meant that it could furnish a drive for a spaceship and provide the direct means for the conquest of the stars. And Bud Gregory had devised it to make his ancient car climb hills. Then one day I seen some dirt track races, explained Bud Gregory. I seen fellas betting on them, so I made a deal with a driver and put my dinkus on his car. He could go faster, so he won, and I'd bet on him and won some too. It's pretty easy money, Mr. Murphy, and I don't never figure on working myself to death. Whatever you use with that drive gets cold, Murphy said dully. Yeah, said Bud Gregory, nodding. I use the motor to pull the car and it gets cold. That's why I run the motor, so it won't get too cold to push. I've been following the dirt track races ever since, he added, renting out my dinkas to drivers and betting on them. At this, Murphy, kidnapped and with his head one monstrous ache, felt again that helpless, irritated envy with which Bud Gregory always inspired him. Bud had made a heat transformer, which turned heat directly into kinetic energy. He'd made a device which could replace every motor on Earth by a simpler element and raise the amount of power available by an astronomical figure. He'd created an invention which could go far toward making Earth a paradise and mistress of far-flung planets. And he used it to win dirt track races so he could bet two or four or five dollars at a time and so live without working. Now that same device, which could mean the survival of humanity in those distant ages when the sun begins to cool, that same device would now be applied to provide thieves and hold-up men with getaway cars the police could not overtake. Murphy did not believe his captors were spies or aliens. They were simply criminals. And presently, they would very probably kill him, because they'd want the secret of their success to remain a secret, and Bud Gregory would doubtless be kept a prisoner as long as he was useful. And meanwhile, that European power would pile one sardonic demand upon another, making sure that America did not prepare defense, until either the United States adopted the alien social system out of sheer necessity, or was wiped out in blasts of atomic flames. But there was no use talking about it. Bud Gregory could not grasp the emergency, and these criminals would look upon it shrewdly as simply an opportunity for large-scale activity of their own variety. Murphy felt the motion of the car more and more violently in his throbbing head. Vibration was agonizing. The after-effects of the crack on his head manifested themselves, too. Suddenly, from a combination of weakness and pain and exhaustion and a form of surgical shock, he fell into a heavy, unnatural sleep. 
And just at the moment that Murphy lapsed into something like a coma-like slumber, the President of the United States took a momentous and quite illegal decision. By law, he could comply with the request of the European power for the grounding and dismantling of all United States aircraft and for the decommissioning of the battle fleet. By law, he could not take any particular action in the situation as it stood. But he did do something. His jaw set. He wrote formal and quite improper orders in his own handwriting. He gave those orders personally to certain high-ranking officers. Perhaps this is treason, said the president bitterly. But I won't see this country go down without a fight. The laws seem to require it. But for once, to the devil with the laws. If those rascals over there want to fight, they'll get it. But they won't get an inch more of concession from us without a fight. And after that, of course, it was simply a question of whether the president's orders could be carried out before the European power learned that they had been issued. One way America would be ready to give back as good as it got. The other way meant ruin. Chapter 4 Tough Tactics Next morning, Bud Gregory shambled into the room in which Murphy had been placed, his craggy features woebegone. Well, Murphy said sourly. Mr. Murphy, said Bud Gregory miserably, those fellas certainly fooled me. That squinty-eyed fella. He told me they was good fellas. I've been making out right good, betting on him in the dirt track races. I ain't had to mend the car in a couple of weeks. I've been eating hog meat and drinking beer and not bothering nobody. But he fooled me. Evidently, said Murphy. His head was horribly sore where it had been hit. He was sick with impotent fury. He knew now that his guess in the car had been right. His captors were simply criminals. They could not see beyond that personal benefit any more than Bud Gregory could see beyond his personal aversion to sheriffs, policemen, and regularly scheduled work. He told me, mourned Bud Gregory, that if I'd take that dinkus off his racing car and put it on another one so as it'd work the same, that his friends would pay me a hundred dollars and ten dollars a day for the use of it. But now they brought me up here and they say I gotta fix cars out of way for all three of them. And if I don't, they'll fill me full of lead. He looked at Murphy as if for sympathy, but Murphy had none for him. When he'd waked from his unwholesome sleep the night before, it was because the car had stopped. It had stopped here. And even in the darkness, Murphy had known it was high in the mountains. The air here was thin and cold. There was the feel of mountains all about. There was a stone wall and a locked doorway. And he'd insisted upon an interview. And the results were unsatisfying. This was a hideout. Much more elaborately fitted out than was to be expected of a party of bandits but their equipment did not mean greater intelligence. His desperate argument for the release of Bud Gregory and himself, that they might tackle the menace facing all America, 
had been laughed at. It wasn't believable. He couldn't even tell them what sort of device he wanted Bud Gregory to make for the defense of America. He didn't know. So his arguments were dismissed as amusingly phony. His captors wanted the getaway cars Bud Gregory could fix up for them. They couldn't imagine Bud Gregory as usually employed on anything else. They laughed at Murphy, dizzy and sick from having been knocked out, and put off until morning the question of what they should do with so ridiculously implausible a government man, or to them, detective. Murphy glared at Bud Gregory. Just what do you think they're going to do to me? Murphy asked bitterly. Bud Gregory blinked. He had been so absorbed in his own troubles, actual forced labor under threat of death, that he had not thought about Murphy. I don't know, answered Gregory. Hold up, men, said Murphy savagely. Robbers, thieves, they'll stick up a bank. Shoot down anybody who interferes and streak it away in the cars you'll fix up for them. Cars that can dodge through traffic the cops can't follow through. And flee faster than the cops can follow. That's the idea, isn't it? Bud Gregory blinked again. But sooner or later the cops will track them down. And you don't like sheriffs and policemen? You'll be in a nice fix when the cops arrive and find you working for them. Bud Gregory squirmed. Besides all that, there'll be my murder to account for. Murphy went on angrily. I know them now. Do you think they'll turn me loose to tell of their plans and methods? No. They're going to kill me, and you'll be in a jam on that account. I told you I didn't have any detectives with me. I didn't. But plenty of detectives knew where I was going and who I was looking for. If you'd played ball with me, everything would have been all square for you. But I went to look for you. I vanished. They'll find me murdered, and you and the gang who murdered me. They'll credit you with murdering me, and they'll hang you. Part of this was nonsense, and the rest of it was bluff. Murphy was furiously certain that he'd be killed, and he knew that no police work was going on anywhere in the United States beyond an attempt to prevent looting in the cities and some efforts to preserve order among the hordes of refugees. But Bud Gregory would not realize that. And if the law doesn't hang you, Murphy finished in fine wrath, your friends will kill you sooner or later. When you're no more used to them, do you think they'll turn you loose to talk either? Do you think they'll pay you ten dollars a day for what you've done when a three-cent cartridge will settle the account? Oh, no. You're a dead man the same as I am, unless you do something. But Mr. Murphy, said Bud Gregory plaintively, what can I do? All I want is not to bother nobody and not have nobody bother me. You might work out some sort of weapon, hang it, Murphy snarled. Then he said savagely, have you had breakfast? Bud Gregory brightened. Yes, sir. After they ate, they told me to fix something for myself. I opened up a couple of cans of beans. Sure, I made out all right. I didn't, snapped Murphy. He was acutely aware that he was not being dignified, but he was filled with the particularly corrosive and horrible fury of a man 
who is impotent to act in an all-important emergency because of an absurdity. The United States was in the most deadly danger in its history. In fact, perhaps in the only deadly danger in all its history. Its only hope lay in a semi-illiterate mountaineer whose only desire was to sit in utter uselessness. Murphy's own prospective murder did not cause him one-tenth of the raging revolt he felt for the idiocy that seemed to rule the cosmos. He was, in fact, half crazy with rebellion at mankind and his own maddening sensation of futility. Get me something to eat, he snapped. Coffee, anyhow. They'll shoot me this morning to save the trouble of feeding me. If you had the brains of a goldfish, you'd end this situation in seconds. But you won't do a thing. You'll stand by and watch them kill me. Then you'll meekly do whatever they tell you to do. And if the police don't catch you first and hang you, these thugs will murder you offhand when they're through with you. Get out and bring me some coffee. Bud Gregory shambled unhappily out of the room. It was seemingly a very casual kind of confinement that restrained Murphy. But when he gazed out of the windows of his room, he grew dizzy. There was a drop of several hundred feet from the window sill. This hideout was a small house within a high stone wall above sheer wilderness. It was somewhere on the side of a mountain, apparently on a bold spur jutting out from a precipitous cliff. As a matter of fact, Murphy learned later that it had been built by a motion picture director with a wife for respectability and redheads for a hobby and that it had been acquired for a hideout by his present hosts after the director had been extensively shot up by them for hire. There was certainly no escape on this side. Bud Gregory had come in by a seemingly unlocked door, but Murphy was cagey. He peered cautiously out of his door and then ventured into the next room. He saw why his door did not need to be barred. The rooms of the house opened on a patio, a courtyard, and a rising mountainside showed on only one side. With what he'd seen from his window, everything was clear. The house was built on a spur sticking out of a precipice, and there was empty space on three sides. It could only be left toward the mountain, and that way was undoubtedly barred. And, of course, it could only be approached from the mountain which made for privacy for a man with a hobby, or security for men with bad consciences. More immediately daunting, though, was the fact that two of his three captors were out in that patio. They looked as if they had hangovers and were in a particularly foul mood. As Murphy watched, the beefy racing driver strolled out and joined them, and the three of them snarled at Bud Gregory, who apologetically shambled out of sight while the three continued to snap at each other. It was obvious that all was not sweetness and light in this place. The thugs argued profanely. After a moment, Murphy caught words. He's lying. He says he's got to have some parts. Let him take a radio to pieces and get him. If he don't fix our cars the way we want them, Let's beat him up. The racing driver began to rage, 
since he don't think we mean it. We could haul his friend out and let Gregory see what'll happen to him if he gets stubborn, he said. Maybe that'll make him work. Murphy felt a little cold chill and a monstrous rage. They were going to shoot him in cold blood to scare Bud Gregory, and there was absolutely nothing to be done about it. Then he saw Bud Gregory's head. He'd stopped inside the house on the farther side of the courtyard. He'd listened to them, and his jaw had dropped open. He looked abysmally scared. He vanished. Maybe he'd duck out. Maybe he'd improvise some incredible device that would open doors and flee, leaving Murphy to be killed out of hand because he was known to be a government man and was believed to be a detective. If Bud did escape, he would hide again with a passionate earnestness, avoiding police and sheriffs and saying nothing whatever of what he knew. In that case, the United States was finished. Or, if it survived, it would be only as the mutilated remnant of itself. Murphy's own death was the most trivial of incidents in the Holocaust certain to occur. Time passed. The three in the courtyard drank from pocket flasks. One of them pulled out a blued steel weapon and looked at it reflectively. That would kill Murphy. They discussed some plan they meant to carry out when Bud Gregory had given them uncatchable getaway cars. They cheered up as they talked. Bud Gregory remained absent. Presently, one of them snarled into the doorway into which he had vanished. After a moment, Bud came out, holding placatingly a square bit of plank on which was a distinctly messy assembly of small radio parts. He expostulated nervously. He couldn't work so fast, and he needed some parts. You're a liar, snarled the beefy man. Go get that other guy and bring him here. We're going to show you something. Chapter 5 Heavy Side Layer At this, Bud Gregory sweated profusely. His hands shook. There were two radio tubes and a cryptic assortment of coils and condensers and resistors and the gadget he had mounted on a bit of plank. He'd obviously worked on it for some time before he'd come in to talk to Murphy, but it did not look like anything, except for the quite improbable coils. And no physicist in the Bureau of Standards had been able to work out what similar coils in Murphy's sample device did or on what principle they were based. Apparently, there was nothing in sight that a ten-year-old boy might not have gimmicked together at random. Go get him, rasped the beefy man, or else. Bud Gregory cringed. He shambled across the courtyard and into the room where Murphy clenched his hands in a fury so great as to override even despair. My, my, my gosh, Mr. Murphy, said Bud Gregory tearfully. They're going to shoot you, and I just know they're going to shoot me afterward. They told me to bring you back with me. His bony, angular hands worked feverishly and seemingly at random on the lunatic device he was holding. 
I showed them this to show I was trying to work, like they said, said Bud Gregory piteously. But they want me to bring you out there. They're going to shoot you, Mr. Murphy. Murphy choked in rage and swallowed a cold lump in his throat. He opened his mouth, perhaps to speak noble final words, but more likely to swear in utter fury. I'm changing it, Mr. Murphy, so they can't shoot you, Bud said shakily as he worked. Sweat rolled down his face and panic filled his eyes. It's a dinkus that makes those little hunks of stuff that metal's made of all travel the same way. It makes some stuff that bounces around in any metal it comes to. I, I got to make it travel where I want it to through the air, he panted. Almost he sobbed. All I ever wanted, Mr. Murphy, was not to bother nobody. If those fellas get killed, you gotta tell the sheriff it ain't my fault. A stray wire connected to heaven knew what at one end, and nothing in particular at the other, took shape as an oddly beautiful curve under his twitching fingers. It was, Murphy saw, almost parabolic. But it was not a parabola. It was some sort of unsystematic curve in which Murphy could begin to see the beginning of a system. If I can get it finished, Mr. Murphy, chattered Bud Gregory, they won't know when it's turned on. They can shoot at you. And if I got it pointed at them... There was a snarl. The beefy man loomed up, a pistol out. Bud Gregory had gone after Murphy, and he had delayed. Both men, their captors knew, were unarmed, but they might get ideas of resistance. So the squint-eyed man had come to see, and he'd heard. He roared profanity at Bud Gregory, who had told Murphy he was to be killed. But Bud was still valuable. The beefy man raised his weapon and shot point-blank at Murphy. The muzzle was no more than ten feet from Murphy's body, and it spewed bullets straight for his heart. And then the beefy man jerked ridiculously, and an expression of incredulous astonishment came over his face. He staggered and put his hand to his side, and then collapsed very slowly to the ground. Bud Gregory yelped in anguished terror. You gotta tell the sheriff, Mr. Murphy, that he done it himself, he wailed. You got to. Murphy had thought that Bud Gregory could not surprise him, but he was blankly amazed to be alive. For a second, he merely stared. Bud Gregory shook and trembled beside him, the contraption in his hands jiggling as he trembled. A little wire somewhere in it was turning white with frost. Then Murphy moved with the day's desperate calm of a man who has seen a miracle. He picked up the beefy man's pistol. Come on, he said thickly. Let's shoot our way out of here. He started forward. But as he stepped out into the patio, the two remaining captors swore. They'd heard the shots. They'd looked for the beefy man to return, driving Bud Gregory before him. 
When they saw Murphy instead, with the beefy man's pistol in his hand, they gaped at him. Hands up, said Murphy desperately. He added foolishly, Surrender in the name of the law. One of the two men fired from his coat pocket, a burst of shots which emptied the magazine of his automatic pistol. He collapsed, kicking to the ground. The other man aimed deliberately, and Murphy tried to shoot him, but a civilized man's instinctive repugnance to bloodshed made his hand shake so that he couldn't pull the trigger. The other man fired with a cold precision at Murphy and dropped dead with a bullet in his brain. His own bullet. Bud Gregory wailed in unholy terror, but he held his little gadget safe and even remembered to turn it off. Miles away, a secret shortwave set sent a message from a hillside in the United States. Another set received it far away. It went into code, went over a cable in the guise of a completely innocent message, reached the capital of a certain European power, was decoded, and rushed to the ruler of that power. He read it and cursed. The United States could not fight according to law, but it was going to fight in defiance of its own acts of Congress. Orders had been given, and, though illegal, they were being obeyed. Disarmed aircraft were fueling and loading up with bombs. Carriers were putting desperately out to sea, and in a matter of hours, the United States would be ready to defend itself. The ruler of the European power was angry. He would have preferred to take over the United States as a merely famine-wracked, desperate, and babblingly grateful nation of folk whose spirit had been broken by a war of nerves. He had intended to seize its industrial plants intact and its cities undestroyed. But since the fools had belatedly shown dangerous intelligence and were preparing to fight rather than be destroyed by their traditional reluctance to take the offensive, why, they would have to be smashed before they could get ready to resist. He gave crisp, ruthless commands. He hadn't really believed they would fight, those democratic fools. Still, in fifteen minutes, the first salvo of long-range guided missiles would be on the way, and other salvos would follow at two-minute intervals. And in a matter of an hour or so, North America would be like a knacker stall and the rest of the world would have had an object lesson. And in the hideout, Bud Gregory sat with his bones seemingly turned to jelly. What the devil happened? Murphy asked unsteadily. And we've got to get busy making something that'll stop an atom bomb bombardment of America. Talk, man. Something may blow us up at any minute. You... You gotta tell the sheriff I didn't do nothing, quavered Bud Gregory. I didn't kill those three fellas, Mr. Murphy. They done it themselves. You'll tell the sheriff that. I don't want to have no trouble. Talk, commanded Murphy. We've got to work out something. What have you got there? 
Bug Gregory swallowed. He trembled uncontrollably. I told you I made a dinkus to make my car pull up hills, he whispered. It's some stuff that uh, uh, bounces around and stuff that conducts electricity, Mr. Murphy. I told you about it. All the little hunks and metal that stuff gets in have to move the same way. I made it make my car climb hills, and then I fixed it so I could make them little hunks of stuff act as brakes, too. I could even push the car backwards if I wanted them to. And I've been making a living betting on a fella I fixed the dinkus on his racing car. That, that fella, I had his car fixed so it couldn't turn over either. Murphy listened in an unnatural calm. He knew all of this, of course. But Gregory was not a genius. He was something so far beyond mere genius that there is no word for it. He simply knew, instinctively, all the things the physicists of the world would hope to find out in a hundred years or so. He was able to scramble together absurd-looking devices that turned heat into electricity and made common dirt form an atomic pile, and the random molecular movements due to heat convert themselves into kinetic energy. But Gregory could make a spaceship that would travel among the stars, or he could make devices which would turn Earth into a paradise. Also, he could make dirt track racing automobiles run faster. When I realized they were going to kill both of us, he said abjectly, I got scared. So I took the dinkus I had most finished and changed it a little bit, and then... Instead of making things move faster, it turned them back. Something that didn't move fast didn't get changed. But anything like uh, a bullet, when I turned my dinkus on it, the faster it was going, the faster it got flung back. And, uh, of course, it got flung back straight to where it came from. Murphy was strangely calm, as any man would be who had seen his would-be assassins drop dead from their own bullets fired at him, and bounced back in a straight line. When miracles happen, one is stunned to calmness. Now he nodded his head slowly. I see, he said. When bullets ran into the field you projected, it was like hitting an elastic spring. Your field absorbed their energy and stopped them and then fed their energy right back and made them return to where they came from, in the same line and at the same speed they'd started with. That's it? Yeah, Mr. Murphy, said Bud Gregory pallidly. That's it. You'll tell the sheriff I didn't kill those fellas. Oh, yes, said Murphy slowly. I'll tell him that. I take it you didn't project a field to make racing cars run faster, though. No, Mr. Murphy, said Bud Gregory, shivering. I run it through a wire to the motor, but I can throw it, and when it hits something that carries electricity, it bounces all around and stays there. It don't bother rocks or glass none. I see, Murphy said in numb tones. Most interesting. 
Now, we've got to stop an atomic attack on America. Then he stood absolutely still for a long moment. Look here, he said. Will it bounce around in a gaseous conductor? Gas that has ions bouncing around so it will carry a current? Yeah, said Bud Gregory. Of course, Mr. Murphy. What you're going to do now, said Murphy, with really monstrous tranquility, is to make a big version of that dinkus in your hand, a really big one, so we can turn it straight up and shoot that field into the heaviside layer. Do you know what that is? It's a layer of ionized air that covers the whole earth about 15 miles up. You're going to make a dinkus that will fix the whole heaviside layer so that anything that's shot into it will be bounced right back where it came from, just like those bullets did. If you don't, I'll either kill you or tell the sheriff on you. Bud Gregory blinked at him. I don't have to make a big one, Mr. Murphy, he said plaintively. This here one will fix anything. It don't take no power. The power comes from the things that get flung back. All I got to do is this, Mr. Murphy. He put his preposterous, untidy device on the ground and bent the curiously curved wire so that the flatter part of its unsystematic curve was parallel to the ground. He threw a small switch. The two radio tubes glowed. A small wire turned white with frost. Nothing can get through that layer now, Mr. Murphy, he said anxiously. Now about this sheriff business. In the sprawling, far-flung territories of a certain European power, columns of vapor suddenly screamed skyward at breathtaking accelerations. There were hundreds of them. They were the guided missiles which were to destroy America. They carried atomic bombs. They should make the better part of the continent into blasted radioactive craters. From the nations which were satellites of the European power, other columns of vapor streaked skyward. More bombs. They should surge furiously through the air to the chill emptiness beyond it. And they should circle a good part of the earth and then drive furiously down and spout ravening atomic flames. Yet they didn't. They went skyward, to be sure. They vanished in emptiness. And men on the ground prepared to send others after them. But they didn't do that either. The guided missiles roared into the thin, invisible heaviside layer of the Earth's atmosphere, whose peculiarity is that it has been ionized by the sun's rays and therefore has a specific electrical conductivity. The rocket projectiles were made of metal. They went raging into the ionized gas, in which stuff, which only Bud Gregory could understand, was, in his words, bouncing around. And there they stopped. They exhausted their fuel in a furious, terrible duel with implacable and quite incomprehensible forces. The energy they possessed was somehow absorbed, and then their fuel cut off, and all the energy they had parted with was restored to them, and they went hurtling back toward the earth. 
toward the exact spot from which they had been discharged. They were equipped with very sensitive fuses. Even the terrific velocity with which they struck their own launching sites did not keep the fuses from working. The atomic bombs they carried exploded. They blew up their own launching sites. More, they blew up the other bombs on the other guided missiles, waiting to form the second and third and twentieth salvos. Very many large areas of a certain European power became monstrous craters, unparalleled craters, chasms going down to the molten rock below the Earth's crust. There were similar craters in the satellite nations, but there were no craters in America, not even little ones. No atom bombs fell on the United States. When the President of the United States barked a grim and defiant message to the European power, he knew nothing of the craters. They had been made only five minutes earlier. He simply barked defiantly that the United States wasn't going to change its government or its way of living for anybody, and it would fight anybody that wanted to fight. But nobody did. In fact, neither the European power nor its satellites were apt to fight anybody for a very, very long time. And, of course, Murphy went back home. He was quite broke when he got there, and he could have been fired from his civil service job for taking leave without permission. But since almost everybody else had done the same thing, his offense was graciously pardoned. He was, however, deprived of pay for all the time he'd been absent. The thing that makes him mad, though... No, there are two things that make him mad. When it was clear that there was no further danger to America, he turned off Bud Gregory's device and packed it in a car, the same car in which he'd been taken to the hideout. And he drove Bud Gregory down to Los Angeles, where he intended to try to get passage back to Washington. People were flocking back to the cities everywhere then, and police were regulating the flow of returning refugees. Murphy's captured car was stopped, and three policemen advanced to give him instructions about the route he should take. And Bud Gregory couldn't face three cops. He jumped out of the car and ran away into the thick of the mob of cars and pedestrians streaming back into the city. Murphy couldn't have caught him. He didn't try, because he was trying so hard to rescue Bud Gregory's gadget which Bud had used as a stepping stone when he scrambled out of the car. Those are the two things that make Murphy mad. Bud Gregory fled and could not possibly be found. And his device was smashed, so it wouldn't work anymore. Murphy still has it, of course, but he's lost all hope of understanding it. In fact, whenever he thinks about Bud Gregory, he begins to swear. He envies Bud Gregory. Because Bud Gregory is something there isn't any word for. Next on the Lost Sci-Fi Podcast, Kylie felt all-powerful with the alien guiding him in the looting of a world. 
Now the whole galaxy was his. If he could remember to Never Trust a Thief by Robert Silverberg. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.